Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present Samer Badawi, a Palestinian-American writer who examines the power President Biden has to pressure Israel into accepting the ceasefire in Gaza and end the mass slaughter of Palestinian civilians there. Fletcher Harper, executive director of the multi-faith international climate organization Green Faith, who assesses the disappointing outcome of the UN COP28 climate summit that recently concluded in Dubai. And Michael Zweig, emeritus professor of economics at the State University of New York, who talks about his new book titled Class, Race, and Gender, Challenging the Injuries and Divisions of Capitalism. But first we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. After a year of deliberation, France's National Assembly rejected centrist President Emmanuel Macron's proposed immigration bill without debate. It was a bitter defeat for Macron, whose immigration bill was a centerpiece of his second term. Immigration is an obsession of France's right-wing political parties. The Guardian reports that Macron's dual approach included harsh penalties for illegal migrants and toughened French language requirements while offering new incentives to welcome immigrants with job skills in the construction, healthcare, and hospitality sectors. The opposition coalition included the Greens, the leftist New Pest Alliance, Marine Le Pen's right-wing National Rally Party, and the center-right Republicans. Macron and his allies sent the immigration bill back to a joint legislative committee to negotiate a new proposal. Oliver Faure, the leader of France's Socialist Party, said it's time to work on a bill that is in line with Republican principles. He went on to declare foreigners should not be viewed as suspects. After the United Auto Workers won historic new contracts with the big three automakers, the union announced plans to organize 13 non-union U.S. manufacturing plants with the goal of organizing 150,000 new UAW members. But the UAW's new militant leadership under President Sean Fain faces significant obstacles embedded in U.S. labor law, where even when the system works, the wheels of justice are too slow to make meaningful change in the workplace. Hostile employers such as Tesla CEO Elon Musk have frustrated union workers' progress for years. In 2017, the UAW was engaged in a union organizing campaign at Tesla's Fremont, California plant when pro-union worker Richard Ortiz was fired for protected union activity. Although every agency and court that examined the case ruled in Ortiz's favor, six years later he still doesn't have his job back. The American Prospect reports that the Ortiz case demonstrates how a persistent, aggressive employer that doesn't want a union can frustrate collective bargaining by flagrantly violating labor law, understanding that insignificant fines and penalties, as well as the glacial slowness of the legal system, will let them win in the end. 
Israel's war against Hamas has turned up the political heat on the squad. A group of progressive Democratic Party lawmakers, led by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who are advocating for a permanent ceasefire in Gaza. Now, three members of the squad face primary challenges, funded by the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee, or APAC, in St. Louis, Minneapolis, and suburban New York. In St. Louis, Congresswoman Cori Bush will face off against Prosecutor Wesley Bell. Bell only jumped into the race recently after deciding not to run against Missouri's right-wing Republican senator, Josh Hawley. In suburban Westchester, progressive Democrat Jamal Bowman is facing off against Westchester County Executive George Latimer, who is pro-Israel in a district with a highly organized Jewish community and an active coalition of black and Latino voters. Minnesota's 5th Congressional District Representative Ilhan Omar is being challenged by former Minneapolis City Council member Don Samuels, who ran and narrowly lost to Omar in 2022. APAC has spent millions in Democratic primaries in recent years to defeat progressive critics of Israel, often with progressive-sounding ads that don't mention Israel at all, while simultaneously endorsing many pro-Trump Republican candidates who voted to overturn the 2020 election. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. As Israel's air and ground war in Gaza entered its 10th week, Gaza health officials report that nearly 20,000 Palestinians have been killed, with over 50,000 wounded, since the conflict began on October 7th, following the Hamas terrorist attack on Israel that killed 1,200 men, women, and children and kidnapped 240 hostages. On December 15th, three Israeli hostages were killed in Gaza by Israeli soldiers. The three were reported to have been shot while walking toward the soldiers despite carrying a white flag and yelling for help in Hebrew. Elsewhere, Palestinian Authority Health Minister Mai al-Kaila has called for an investigation into reports that the Israeli military used bulldozers to crush and bury Palestinians alive as they raided Gaza's Kamal Adwan Hospital. Human Rights Watch has accused the Israeli government of using starvation of civilians as a method of warfare by depriving Gaza's 2.3 million residents of food, water, and fuel. Intensive negotiations are underway at the United Nations on a resolution calling for a halt to hostilities to allow desperately needed humanitarian aid to enter Gaza. On December 12th, President Joe Biden departed from his previous public statements by warning that Israel was losing international support because of its indiscriminate bombing of Gaza. Your reporter spoke with Samer Badawi, a Palestinian-American writer and a contributor to Plus 972 magazine. Here he talks about the power President Biden has to pressure Israel into accepting a ceasefire in Gaza and end the mass slaughter of Palestinian civilians. Two-thirds of Americans uh, do not support 
Israel's propagation of this war or America's support of it. And a staggering 70 percent of people between the ages of 18 and 34 support an immediate ceasefire. Um, This is across the political spectrum in the United States of America. The reasons why um, that gap exists, I think, uh, between our lawmakers and the general public come down to a long-held belief that Israel, despite what we're seeing on our screens today, be it through social media or through the mainstream press, is the only democracy in the Middle East. This is our line of choice uh, when it comes to America's relationship with that particular country. And this thought has been so ingrained in the psyche of American politicians that anything short of 100% backing of the state of Israel is viewed as a betrayal, not only of Israel, but of our values as an American people. And what's remarkable about this is that what Israel is doing today in Gaza and in the West Bank is actually in direct contradiction to what we stand for as a country. Samar, I did want to ask you about... uh... Joe Biden. Just about a week ago, President Biden said very clearly that Israel's indiscriminate bombing in Gaza is costing Netanyahu and Israel's support. And it's not only Israel that's losing support, it's also Joe Biden himself. What power, if any, do you believe that Joe Biden has to force Israel to stand down just out of humanitarian concerns, not, not to mention Biden's own personal political future? What do you think Joe Biden could do right now to force a ceasefire and in the long term get serious about addressing the root causes of this conflict, which go back some 75 years? Well, there there are two things. The immediate step that the Biden administration can take is to end all arms supplies to Israel, period. This is not a a big stretch of the imagination either, as, as your listeners may know, and I'm sure you do. I mean, there's a budget stalled in Congress today over funding for two wars, the war in Ukraine and the war on Gaza. And for the Biden administration to to relent on its insistence of sending arms to a military that it has already accused of indiscriminate shelling, that would actually help him politically in terms of his negotiating position vis-a-vis Congress um, in, in passing this, this all-important budget. And we're not just talking about a defense budget here. We're talking about the entire budget of the U.S. government, which is being stalled. And there are immigration issues as well that we can get into. But um, the ending those arms sales will have an immediate and dramatic effect on Israel's ability to perpetuate the killing. Um, when I talk about 14,000 artillery shells, we're talking about, a, you know, in, in, a, in a context where Israel has dropped more bombs on Gaza in the course of two months than we dropped on, uh, sorry, than than Russia dropped on Ukraine in the entirety of that war, Um, and more than the U.S. dropped on Afghanistan in the worst years of that war. So the Israelis are, to put it quite simply, running out of ammo. And for the United States to cut off, to turn off the spigot, um, would have a dramatic impact on Israel's ability to continue this war. That's number one. Number two is that the the Biden administration needs to um, come to terms with the fact that despite what happened on October 7th, and we all deplore violence against civilians. I mean, as a Palestinian, you can imagine I've been asked this hundreds of times over the course of the last two months, and I'm sick of repeating it. We deplore the violence. However, you cannot continue and 
you know, our, our defense secretary was just in Israel repeating the mantra that Hamas needs to be destroyed. To destroy Hamas, I, I mean, it's clear, it's evident to everyone now, there is no path to doing that without destroying the entirety of Gaza and a significant proportion of its people. So we need to, we need to let go of this maximalist position and think of ways to, to deal, quote-unquote, with Hamas from the American position politically, diplomatically, and in concert with the Palestinian Authority, which exists in Ramallah today. So these, this is the wise way to handle things, and it's the way to immediately put an end to this war. The problem is that when you insist on destroying Hamas in a context where the Israelis themselves, I mean, if you actually listen to the Israeli media, You'll hear them saying, we, we are no closer to debilitating Hamas, much less destroying it, than we were two and a half months ago. And in effect, the only thing the Israelis have to show are all of these deaths on the civilian side. And so for, for our government to continue insist, to insist that this is the end game um, is both unrealistic and it, it's frankly perpetuating the horror that we all see. So nobody wants to admit of course, that, uh, you know, with American weapons and the, the largest military in the Middle East that happens to be a nuclear power, they cannot take on this band of 30,000 uh, fighters in Gaza. But you know what? The same thing happened in Afghanistan after 20 years. So it's not a stretch of the imagination for us to look at that situation and politically be a little bit more realistic and talk about dealing, quote unquote, again, with Hamas over the long term uh, through a realistic peace process that does not sideline the people of Gaza, but rather puts them at the heart of that process. Um, and that has been the problem um, up until this point, is that any talk of Gaza deprives the people of agency. The very people who are being bombed today have no voice in their future. And so long as that continues, um, we're going to be back to this uh, starting point again, no matter how much the Israelis destroy um, the place, and no matter how many people are killed, because this has happened before. As I said, I've seen it myself in 2009, 2012, and 2014. We always come back to the same place um, if we deny agency to the people who have the largest stake in seeing a peace emerge from, from all of this bloodshed. That was Samer Badawi, a Palestinian-American writer and a contributor to Plus 972 magazine. Find a link to his recent Progressive Magazine article titled most Americans support a ceasefire in Gaza, so why don't our elected officials? And related commentary by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. The 28th Annual UN Climate Change Conference of Parties, or COP, held in Dubai in the United Arab Emirates, ended on December 13th. It was the first UN climate conference chaired by the head of an oil company in this case the state oil company of the UAE. Among the 97,000 delegates were the largest number of fossil fuel lobbyists in the climate summit's history, more than 2,400, who saw the meeting as an opportunity to make oil and gas deals with representatives of almost 200 nations who attended. Other big news coming out of the Dubai conference was that for the first time, Fossil fuels were referenced in the text of the final document, which was agreed to by all parties. The final text called not for a phasing out, or even a phasing down of production, but a transition away from fossil fuels, the biggest generator of greenhouse gases.
Between the Lines' Melinda Tuhu spoke with Fletcher Harper, executive director of the multi-faith international climate organization Green Faith. Here he talks about his organization's summary of the summit meeting, where attendees included a Green Faith delegation from many countries in the Global South, and explains why he believes it's important to attend, even though there's a growing view around the world that the UN COP process is deeply flawed. The importance of being there is to elevate voices from the front lines so that at an event that, like it or not, receives global media attention, there are dissenting voices or voices that are strongly critical of the inadequate leadership that countries, financial institutions, certainly the fossil fuel industry are, are providing. It's a frustrating venue at this point there and meeting. I mean, it's turned into a sort of trade show plus showcase for false solutions, plus, you know, too often a place for governments that are really in truth opposed to progress on the issue to get to greenwash and launder their reputations around the issue. We're no defender of the deficiencies of COP at this point. It is the show in town. I think that there's a strategic decision that has to be made about whether an outright boycott serves the climate movement's interests or not. And at this point, we don't think that it does because it essentially abandons a playing field that every government on the planet has legitimized and hands it over to even more fully to those who are not interested in making real progress. In your email, you wrote about a lot of the shortcomings of this particular COP. Can you kind of summarize those beyond what we've already talked about here? The first problem is that the top line outcome that received media coverage around the world was a vague commitment about endorsing a transition away from fossil fuels. The language had no timetable had no binding or required commitment quality to it. It was essentially an unenforceable verbal gesture towards something that requires measurable, enforceable, urgent timelines. And so for the media to portray that as a victory is both naive and, and misguided. And for governments to crow about its success is simply legitimizing more delay. There are some who say, well, it's important that, you know, this is the first time officially that the COP has said this about fossil fuels. That's true, but it's nowhere close to enough at this point. It's not the 1990s. I think a second issue is that there were no substantial commitments to the loss and damage fund that was created at last year's COP out of a recognition that countries around the world, largely in the global south or the global majority, are suffering enormous and growing climate impacts that they've done nothing to create, and that any understanding of fairness and justice requires that the polluters pay for the damage that they've caused. 
This is a fund that, again, in concept is extremely important, but what matters is in practice that really very large-scale sums from the historic polluters, the U.S., Western European countries, Australia, Canada, need to be put into this fund, and there needs to be an accessible process so that it's not subject either to large-scale or long-time long delays or processes that are inaccessible to communities that are getting hit the hardest. And we didn't see that kind of progress. I think that sustained public mobilization is absolutely vital. History shows that that plays an important part in changing the political landscape, and that's what we're committed to doing. That was Fletcher Harper, executive director of the multi-faith international climate organization Green Faith. Learn more about Green Faith and the outcome of the COP28 Climate Summit by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. A recent NBC News poll found that 70% of Americans believe the country needs to do more to increase social justice. Although we're often told the country is polarized and the extremist Republican Party's culture war often makes headlines, there's broad support for a wide range of progressive policies. A large majority of Americans support labor unions, gay marriage, abortion rights, Medicare and Medicaid, lower drug prices, expansion of Social Security, doubling the federal minimum wage, breaking up the nation's big banks, reforming our tax system that favors the rich, and want the government to do more to address the climate crisis. Yet a study conducted by Professors Benjamin Page of Northwestern University and Martin Gillens of Princeton, researching 20 years of data on federal policy decisions, found that wealthy Americans, corporations, and organized interest groups have been much more successful than ordinary Americans at getting their preferred policies passed by Congress. In his new book, Class, Race, and Gender, Challenging the Injuries and Divisions of Capitalism, Michael Zweig, Emeritus Professor of Economics at the State University of New York at Stony Brook, makes the case that U.S. progressive social movements have a common interest in challenging the nation's capitalist framework that often prevents these movements from achieving their popular policy goals. Here, Professor Zweig begins by talking about a 1971 memo written to the U.S. Chamber of Commerce by future Supreme Court Justice Lewis Powell, decrying the power of progressive movements and suggesting a strategy to wage an effective corporate counterattack. What was going on in the late 60s and early 1970s is hard for those of us who lived through it to uh, remember it, and it's certainly hard for people who have come up in the last 20, 30, 40 years to realize what was the climate in this country, the political climate, in the late 60s and early 1970s, where the corporate world and corporate capitalism was very much on the defensive. U.S. imperialism around the world with the Vietnam War, all of that resulted in a general understanding very broadly in the country that capitalism was the problem. 
when the uh, Chamber of Commerce went to Lewis Powell, who at the time was a white shoe lawyer in Richmond, Virginia, and said, well, what should we do about this? And Powell wrote this memorandum, which wasn't secret, but it wasn't well known outside of these high-level corporate circles. What he said was very, very important. What Powell said to the Chamber of Commerce and to the world of business is, we have to defend not our own industry, not our own businesses. We have to defend the system as a whole. The capitalist system is under attack. It's not enough just to champion your own industry, no matter how important that is to you. Unless we defend the system as a whole and mobilize our collective resources to do that, these troubles are going to continue, and we're going to continue to be on the defensive. In the 1970s, following that memorandum, the corporate world did follow those instructions and that advice. That's when you get the Heritage Foundation. That's where you get the uh, Federalist Society developed, which ultimately brought us this very reactionary Supreme Court. That's where you get the uh, American Legislative Exchange Council, which develops right-wing legislation for state legislatures to pass and then passes those draft legislations around to all the state legislatures to try to move the agenda to the right, to try to push back on all the gains that the labor movement has made, all the gains that the women's movement made, that the civil rights movement, black liberation movement made, all of that stuff has to be pushed back and undone. And that process, which began in an organized, systematic way, on a class basis, on a system basis, we're still living with today. And they're not done. Uh, Donald Trump and the others in the Republican Party and the MAGA wing and the Republican Party generally these days, what they're about is taking back every possible progressive uh, gain that social movements have won over the last 60, 80 years. And if we don't get together also on a class-wide basis, the working class challenging that capitalist class and the working class with its allies across all these different social movements, we are going to continue to suffer and be on the defensive. So what my book is trying to do, this book on class, race, and gender, is trying to understand what is the underlying significance of corporate capitalism for the foundation of these social movements in that it's capitalism as a system that generates the outrages and the injuries and the divisions that we're all mobilizing against. So instead of taking this on issue by issue, instead of taking it on union by union or occupation by occupation or uh, white people or just black people or these ones or those ones, we have to all band together, still taking care of our own issues, but seeing the uh, solidarity that has to develop across all these issues and across all these movements into one anti-corporate, anti-capitalist movement that shakes the country for power. And that's what this book is trying to support and get people to understand why that's true. That was Michael Zweig, professor of economics emeritus at the State University of New York at Stony Brook and author of the new book titled Class, Race, and Gender, Challenging the Injuries and Divisions of Capitalism. Learn more about the issues examined in Zweig's book by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. You've been listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. 
If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archive programs in streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WESU in Middletown, Connecticut, WETS in Johnson City, Tennessee, KIDE in Hoopa, California, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris.